Lord, speak to us now. Uh, we long to hear from you. We want to hear from you how we can live lives that are wonderful and rich and full of love and lives that bring love and life to others. So uh, help me to communicate clearly and help us all to learn well. Amen. Amen, hope. That's so wonderful, yeah. So here's a question for you. Uh, how many of you enjoy conflict with others? Uh, oh, I see a hand. There's one person, two people who enjoy conflict with others. Isn't that great that we have a couple of psychopaths in the house? No. <laughs> Uh, how many of you spend a lot of your time, or at least a good amount of time, trying to avoid conflict with others? Okay. How successful are you at avoiding conflict? Here's the thing. Conflict is inevitable in life. I spent a lot of money and a lot of time doing a master's degree in organization dynamics uh, many years ago back in Melbourne. A fabulous degree. I learned so much about how people work together, how organizations work. It's been extremely helpful. Uh, but the thing, the one phrase, the one sentence that stood out in my mind, uh, one of the lecturers said in passing, uh, and the, the, the sentence was this, uh, conflict always occurs at the boundary of a shared task. So whenever two people or 10 people or 10,000 people are working together to get something done, at that point of working together, there will always be conflict. So the question is not, how do I avoid conflict? The question is, how do I work with conflict in healthy and productive ways that help us on our task, on our mission to do the things that we want to do together? You'll know this if you've been partnered for a long time in a marriage or a, a long-term relationship. You'll discover that the best way to avoid conflict with your partner is to never try and do anything with them. <laughs> if, if you can arrange it so you are just housemaids sharing a house and you, you only have minimal activities to do, that avoids conflict. But when you actually have to do something together, like parent a child and agree on how you're going to do that, agree on where you're going to go to eat, agree on the uh, sexual economy of your relationship, agree on how you're going to care for aging parents, agree on who's going to do the washing up. I mean, there's, as soon as you've got to work on stuff together, there's going to be conflict. Now, why do I say that? What I've observed in my life over many years is one of the greatest sources of disillusionment with God and spiritual depression or stagnation is that we come into the church and we discover that there is conflict in the church. 
Because we think, okay, so there might be conflict out there, but here I'm going to find a group of people who know God, and we're all on the same page, and we all love each other, and we're not like the church that I used to go to, but now I've found a church here and we all get along, and then what you discover is even in churches, there's conflict. Why? Because conflict is inevitable. When a group of people try and work together, you'll find that there's an inevitability of conflict. Uh, and this is, should not surprise us. It should not depress us. It should not cause us to give up on organized religion and give up on the church and give up on God. What it should do is cause us to think about, well, what do I do with that? Where's God in the conflict? Because does God have a plan in the middle of this? to shape me and refine me. Now, uh, one of the ways we, what we're going to look at now from 2 Corinthians are uh, seven steps to managing conflict well. Well, or at least seven steps that the Apostle Paul took as he was immersed in a really bitter conflict with the church that he had founded and planted. So the Apostle Paul had gone around, he'd, he'd had this life-changing encounter with Jesus, and then he'd gone and started churches all around um, Asia and into Greece, and, uh, and now one of these churches in Corinth was in a state of great conflict with him. So he'd gone to visit them, he'd planted it, he'd gone away, he'd gone back, he'd written a letter to them, there, were, there was all kinds of stuff going on, factions and pride and division in the church. And uh, so he'd said to them, okay, I'm, and the chronology is a little hard to pick together. There's a, he wrote at least three letters to the Corinthians. We have two. So there's a missing letter, uh, and there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in the background we're not sure of, but this is what we can be sure of. He'd visited them. He'd gone away. He told them he was going to come back and visit them, and then he changed his mind and kept going and reorganized his plans. And as a result of that decision on his part, the Corinthians, these Christians, these people who owed their very spiritual life, their connection with God to him and to his ministry, these Corinthian Christians started to say things like, mate, who is this bloke? I mean, in Greek they said that, Latin. He's fickle. He says he's going to come and then he doesn't come. He's selfish. He doesn't care for us. He's weak. He's scared of us. He's avoiding conflict. He's staying away. We don't need him. We've got super apostles because there were others in Corinth at the time who were very articulate, who were preaching the gospel, making a lot of money out of it, promising the Corinthians that if they just followed, uh, if they followed the teaching of one of these super apostles, did what they said, then they didn't need Paul and all the stuff about suffering and weakness, but just follow me and life will be brilliant and fantastic and amazing and extraordinary. You don't need this Paul guy. He can't trust him. He's a unreliable, fickle, scared, weak, nobody. Okay, so that's what he's hearing on the grapevine. And you can imagine how painful that would be, hey? Oh. Now, of course, I find this letter incredibly comforting. Because <laughs> I go, huh, you know what? That's just life. It's normal. So in this conflict, it's not a sign that 
you're bad or the person you're in conflict with is bad, though you might contribute some badness to it. It's just, this is life. So how do we deal with it? Well, look at what Paul does. The first thing, uh, so here's seven steps. You can take notes if you want. They're not, there's no rocket science here. The trick with conflict is not understanding it. The trick is actually dealing with it because conceptually it's quite easy. You see, the first thing you've got to do is uh, you've got to address it. Uh, conflict, uh, and this is, I, and I hate conflict mostly. I would much rather it all went away. And so there's a great temptation just to sweep it under the rug or avoid it or dance around it. Paul doesn't do that. Um, he addresses it head on. This is, this is, you read all of 2 Corinthians. He says, um, now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies we've conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you with integrity and godly sincerity. And he goes on, we don't write to you anything you cannot read or understand. I hope that you've understood us in part. You'll come to understand fully. So he's, this section opens with Paul going, yeah, there's conflict, there's misunderstanding, you don't get me, but let's talk about it. Address it. Now, immediately I say that, it's not as simple as that, is it? Because there's another verse in Scripture that says, in Romans, love covers a multitude of sins. So you don't have to address every disappointment and every conflict. I mean, that would be annoying, wouldn't it? Every time anyone did anything that was vaguely disappointing, you got stuck into them. Like, that just makes you a pain in the neck and actually destroys relationships. So you've got to let love cover over a bunch of stuff, but in the end, you also have to deal with things. Uh, I said this to someone this week um, as we were talking about joining this church and being part of this. I said, the thing I've learned is to keep short accounts with each other. That is, you know when you owe someone some money and you have an account with them? You know, maybe you're, you know, you, you want to pay, settle up your account in a week or two. Don't let, don't let your debt run on for months and months and years and years. Don't let the conflict run on. If you can, deal with it. Because it, not dealing with it generally is only going to make it worse, not better. And at this point, I'm very much preaching to myself. So address it. Then what you've got to do, though, which Paul does really well, is honestly... Um, got to own your own stuff right you've got to own your own stuff and and this is tricky sometimes so each of us will have we'll, we'll tend to fall on a spectrum when it comes to conflict at one end of the spectrum will be those who tend to think whenever there's conflict it's all my fault you may have may have been brought up because of your family of origin, because of the stuff that you went through, if someone's unhappy with you and there's a breakdown in relationship, your default position is to think it's all your fault. Okay, and, and this is, you know, that's not true. On the other end of the spectrum, you may be somebody whose default position, out of defensiveness or fear, or your family of origin is to think it's all their fault. And, you know, the truth is never that simple. Uh, it's always it's always a product of the nature of the work you're trying to do, of the system, and of what each of you bring. 
even when you've done what is right, you can still find yourself in conflict. And that's what Paul says, right? He owns it. He says, listen, I have, and my conscience testifies I've conducted myself, ourselves in the world, and especially in relationship with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. He hasn't relied on worldly wisdom. He's relied on God. And still, it hasn't worked. He's communicated clearly. We don't write to you anything you cannot read or understand. He's done everything he possibly can. He examines himself. He questions himself. There's great analysis that goes on uh, and honesty. And there's still conflict. Um, just because you have done what is right doesn't mean that everyone's going to like you or everything's going to work out, does it? Misunderstandings abound. Um, <laughs> of course, uh, I had this epiphany when I was reading this and preparing this. I thought, hmm, as I read this and think about this conflict, uh, who, who do you most easily identify with? Are you finding yourself identifying mostly with Paul or mostly with the Corinthians? And I had to stop and I think, I find myself identifying with Paul mostly. I'm, you know, no, I'm, I think I've mostly got things right and I'm doing well. And then I thought, oh, Lord, maybe I, maybe I really should identify a little more with the Corinthians. And, and, and here's the genius of the Bible, actually. It draws us into the story. And, you know, sometimes you're more of a Paul and sometimes you're more of a Corinthian. Sometimes you've acted really well with all sincerity and wisdom and godliness and, and sometimes not. So own your stuff. Own it. Don't be afraid of that. Own what you've, when what you've done is good. Like sometimes if you're someone whose tendency is to always think that it's your fault, sometimes you've got to stand, no, no, actually, I don't think so. I've, I've done what's right. And sometimes, like the Corinthians, you've got to be smacked around the head by someone and confronted with the truth and go, oh, jeepers, I really, really, really did wrong here. Okay, so own your stuff. Step two. Step three from this, um, once you've owned your stuff, you've got to work very hard to think the best of the other. Okay, so Paul has heard that the Corinthians are slandering him and impugning his motives and making out that he's a pretty hopeless leader and a hopeless human being. He's fickle. You can't trust him. How does he respond? Well, um, he thinks the best of them. He avoids what the psychologists and the marriage therapists call negative attribution. You know what negative attribution is? Is when I attribute to you negative motives, the worst. You've made me feel this way. And that's because you're a miserable, awful human being who's trying to make me feel miserable. Okay? We, we attribute motives to others. We infer motives to others based on how they make us feel. I feel sad because of what you've said. 
So I infer, I attribute to you the motive of trying to make me feel sad. I feel scared because of what you've said, so I assume you're a dangerous person and I read that into you. The problem, of course, is I can't read your mind, you can't read my mind. The way to handle conflict biblically is to avoid that and think the best of each other. And that's what Paul does. Look at what he says here. He assumes that this conflict, at least this is what he says, is based on a misunderstanding. Verse 14, uh, I, I think this is very, very clever. He says, as you have come to under, as you have understood us in part. He says to the Corinthians, hey, I don't think you're bad or mad or evil. I just think you, you haven't really understood the whole thing, the whole picture. So um, he assumes that, that the, the conflict is because they haven't really understood. He's thinking the best of them. And in thinking the best of them, he believes and tells them that they have the capacity to grow and change, that they can understand, they'll come to understand it fully, and that they'll be reconciled. Isn't that amazing? He says, I think, it's just misunderstanding now. The scholars debate whether this was really just, well, well this was a, just an extremely clever rhetorical strategy on Paul's part. He actually did think they, there was more than a misunderstanding going on. We don't know. But this is what he says. So think about someone that you've been in conflict with. You want someone who's really hurt you, perhaps, in that conflict. What do, you, what do you think about them as a human being? What do you think about their motives? What do you, you know? You know what? What I always think to myself and what I tr say to others is when someone hurts, when, when someone interacts with me, I always interpret what they do in terms of how it makes me feel. But most people don't filter or... Most people don't think about my feelings before they say something or do something. I'm just not that important to them. So I shouldn't infer motives on your part. Like when you came into church this morning, uh, were any of you thinking about how your attendance and the way you showed up and what you brought to church and how you're sitting there listening would make me feel? Did, did it even cross your mind? No. You were just thinking about you. <laughs> you were just like, oh, I'm at church. I'm, maybe you're nervous. Maybe you're hoping someone will talk to you. Maybe you hope it won't be too boring and too long. Maybe you're really excited and looking forward to seeing people, connecting with God. Maybe you can't wait for the coffee. Maybe you just had a massive fight in the car on the way and the magic door hasn't quite done its job to turn you from fighting and miserable to smiling and happy on the, as you cross the door. You weren't thinking about me. The temptation, however, for me standing here is I look at you and your behavior and I think that, you know, whether you're here and how you're here and whether you're happy has to do with how you think and feel about me. And it doesn't because I'm not that important to you. You're important to you. So what we have to do is, is dial back our own tendency to think that people are always attacking us or in conflict uh, have negative motives and just say, no, I'm not that important. Uh, think the best of them. Think the best of them. That's what Paul does. 
The uh, fourth thing Paul does is uh, he um, addresses their real concerns. So go behind. So there's a under every conflict, because it's about working together, there'll be the kind of all the emotions and the misunderstanding and the understandings and the process, but then there'll actually often be real stuff there as well, like, what did he say? Was he going to go to them once or twice? And what was happening? So you have to address what's really going on, and you want to do it non-defensively, because you're working together. So address it. This is what Paul then does in these two verses. He, he explains what's happening. He tells them why. But, but that only comes after he's addressed his own issues and he makes sure that he's thinking the best of them. And then he goes, to, well, this is what's really going on. So understand and work with the real issues. Don't jump to the real issues first. You've got to deal with your own heart and your view of the others before that happens. Uh, and then he, uh, which is incredibly significant, he appeals to a common identity. Uh, psychologists even today will tell us, and sociologists, this is very powerful. If, if you can establish a sense of commonality, common cause, common identity with someone, your chance of resolving conflict goes up massively. That's why intergroup violence and conflict is so hard, right? If you can't find a, a point of commonality. And in the church, you know, what is the commonality? What is Paul, uh, where does he go to with this? Well, he goes to God. One of the things the Corinthians did was they said, well, Paul, you're fickle, you change your mind, you're weak. How can we trust you? And because you represent God, we can't trust God either. God's fickle, God's weak, we're on our own. So Paul goes, no, 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 God's not fickle, trust God. And then he appeals to their common identity. He says, uh, now it is God who makes, us both, who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So let's put your marriage and your workplace aside and think about fellow Christians and believers in church. We can extend this to marriage and workplace in time. But for whenever you are dealing with a Christian person with conflict in the church, the thing you must never lose sight of is that what we have in common is far, far, far more significant and more lasting than any difference we might have. We're, we're one in Christ Jesus. God has made, God loves you, God loves me. It's, it's unthinkably awful when, a Christian, when Christians lose sight of that and they go, well, we, I, God loves me, but he hates you. <laughs> well, I'm the only two, true Christian. You, I disagree with you on this or that or the other thing, so you can't really be a follower of Jesus. And you go, no, no. If you claim Jesus Christ, if you've received the Holy Spirit, then what we have together is what is far more significant than anything else we have and is the ground and the basis for working together and loving each other and overcoming all our differences. At least it should be. And it's guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. I find this so... 
I find this so tragic. I mean, I've been professionally religious leading churches for like 30 years. No, 25, 27. Long enough. And I just think to myself, why can't we all just treat each other like brothers and sisters who are all Christians? We're all just human beings journeying through life, doing our best to connect with God, to make sense of what it is to be a disciple, grappling with all kinds of disappointments and hurts and foibles and inadequacies, bumbling along. And then we treat each other like we're not really Christians. We treat each other badly and poorly, and we lose sight of this extraordinary reality that, like, you love Jesus, I love Jesus. We're bound together by the Holy Spirit. And then we treat each other like, we don't really matter and we're different. I just think that's tragic. Don't ever lose sight. If, and again, if you become part of a church, if you become a follower of Jesus, you're bound together with this family. I don't know. So, uh, now of course, what that means if you want to extend that outside of a, a spiritual, religious context, you know, in a workplace, um, quick thing about how to deal with conflict in the workplace appeal to your common identity in the workplace you're working together what matters is you're in this organization you've got this task together that's more significant actually than your individual differences and in a marriage appeal to the institution that you're in we're in this together there's this thing that's bigger than us called our marriage called our family and and that's what has us it's not you and me as individuals it's us in this thing and we have an identity together in this thing. And that can help frame and, uh, and make sense of conflict and difficulty in your marriage. Uh, but in the church, man, we're, I don't know. All I'd ask in church, so if you joined, uh, you, we're part of this. All I want is that you treat me as a, as a Christian and I treat you as a Christian. <laughs> That's not hard, eh? And then we're part of the family. That's how it works. And it's great. I mean, you're a mess, I'm a mess, God loves me, God loves you, let's get on with it. It's kind of simple, um, but oh so hard. Uh, the sixth thing is, it's all about joy. Pursue joy. And you go, huh, how is that even possible? Well, there's a fascinating verse in here um, about, about human relationships, um, this is what Paul says in verse 24. He's the apostle. He started the church. He's got authority over them. And he enters this conflict and he goes through all of this. He says, not that we lord it over your faith, but we work. Look at this. We work with you for your joy. So when you face conflict, which is inevitable, you lean into it and you move towards the other person and they move towards you and you work together with each other for, for joy. For joy. I mean, it's hard. It's much harder to work with others. It's much harder to be in community. But oh my goodness, the end result is joy. If you lean into the conflict. Uh, this will surprise some of you. Uh, over the years, 
In the churches that I've been part of, I've experienced conflict. And sometimes people have left. And anyone who's spoken to me before they leave, because of conflict, either with me or with someone else, or, you know, well, so-and-so's done this, I can't be around them, I've got to go now. I will say that this is, the, this is the conversation I always have. I say, I guarantee you that if you dig in and lean into the conflict and work at it, that you will grow far more and experience far more joy in your life than if you take the easy route out and just bail. I can count on one hand the number of people who followed that advice. Actually, that's probably not true, probably a bit more than that. We bail too easily. We go, it's hard now, and it looks like it's going to be hard, so I'm just going to give up. You know that in your, if you've been married for a while, you'll know that uh, being married for a long time is um, just one endless journey of bliss and joy, isn't it? You never have hard times in a relationship of marriage. It's just endless joy. Well, you know, at least that's what I'm assuming about your marriages. In my marriage, what I discover is there are times when it's hard. When, for all sorts of reasons. And you know what? The greatest joy comes when you lean into it and you stick together and you work at it. Here's some research to back this up. They did a longitude, they did a study of uh, two sample groups, many thousands of couples in each. They surveyed people who were reported very high levels of conflict and dissatisfaction and pain in their marriage. And, uh, and the, the control group went off and uh, one of the groups went off and got divorced and one group stayed together in their marriage. You know, after five years, the uh, reported levels of happiness in both groups were the same. <laughs> like I saw you say, I, I quote that it's the same in your like if you're in a relationship, work for joy long term. Uh, walking away is not always the answer. Now let me put a caveat around that. If there's uh, intimate partner violence, if there's addiction, then then you need to get out of the relationship, uh, and you need help. And and I want to you know if there's there, this isn't to say that every relationship is actually fixable, because some aren't. But in the normal brokenness and disappointments of life, lean in, work for joy in church, in marriage. It's also true in your workplace very often, in your friendships. So there we go. Uh, and then the final thing that he does is... Uh, Love is the motive, right? This is the thing. He does it all. All of this is in the end driven out of love. Verse 4, For I wrote you, Paul says, out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. The reason we lean into conflict with somebody else, the reason we want to deal with stuff that comes up in our community is because we love each other. Leaning into this is an act of love. Allowing somebody to continue in destructive patterns of behavior because you are too scared of the conflict is a failure to love them. 
addressing someone's sin is an act of love. So, dear friends, let us love. Because that's how God has treated us, right? That's how God has treated us. The power to do this comes from our experience of God's love. And that is a great cue. So, with these seven steps in practice, can I make a suggestion? Paul has gone through from one to seven. If you're facing conflict or difficulty with someone, and maybe right now you're stuck in something, what process do you think you would adopt? Would you start, would you start with number one? I would suggest you work your way backwards. Start with love. Get clear in your mind and your heart that you love the other person. Because if you don't walk away, there's no point. You're just attacking them because you hurt them. And then work for joy. Understand that there's a vision of joy and work your way backwards. So while he unpacks this forwards, it's best when it's lived. It's unpacked from one to seven. It actually works best when it's lived from seven to one. Does that make sense? All right. So go forth and deal with every bit of conflict in your life <laughs> and report back next week. Okay, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you have acted in time and space to deal with our conflict with you and help us now out of our experience of your love for us now build healthy, whole relationships with others. Help us as a church family to deal with any conflict and disappointments that may arise so that in a world where people walk away very quickly and easily from conflict, may we model a different way of being. And we ask all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.